You know, sometimes uh, people ask me, how could I spend 16 weeks in one book? Well, we're going to spend 12 weeks in one chapter on Sunday night, but I want you to come and join us because God's Word is inextinguishable. You can't get to the bottom of it. It's just filled with His power and His presence. Well, Cedar Street, once again, I love you so very much, and it's the joy of my heart to be with each and every one of you here this morning as we open up the Word and continue to ask God to be with us as we walk with Him. If you're here, it's been a little while, or again, if you're here for the first time, we are in a sermon series entitled Set Apart. We've been looking verse by verse, verse word by word through the book of 1 Peter. Say that five times. Uh, So what does it mean to be set apart? Well, we're pretty far along in the journey, so I hope that we're starting to understand that being set apart means that if you're a Christian and you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, and you're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, by nature, by the working of God, you ought to look different and sound different and act different than anyone else who does not have Jesus Christ as their Lord and does not have the Spirit of God. And we've talked to all these different areas that Peter's addressing in this letter. We're called to be set apart in everything from our salvation to our holiness, our suffering, our hope, our values, our priorities, our motives, our relationships, and our perseverance in the Christian faith. Again, if we're Christian, we are called to be set apart and as being set apart, a testimony to the rest of the world of the power and the presence of Jesus Christ. Well, last week, we began talking about God's purpose for sovereign authority. How as Christians, with joy and with peace, we can submit to sovereign authority that God has placed over us even when we don't agree with those authority figures. And we talked about sovereign authority in government and we talked about sovereign authority in employment, how we honor the bosses that God has placed over us even when we don't fully agree with them. And some of you last week were like, amen, amen, I, I hear you. We ought, to, we ought to be faithful. Well, now we pull up in the driveway and we bring this idea of God's design for authority and we bring it into the marriage bed. And that is where things are going to get a little bit more personal. If pastors are in the business of preaching popular messages, they probably would skip right over 1 Peter chapter 3. But I'm not in the business of being popular. I'm trying to be faithful. So I'm going to preach a difficult message, but one that promises a great blessing if we listen closely And we're willing to obey what it is that God has revealed to us. And so to start us off, I want to start with a word of encouragement and a bit of testimony. Okay? All wrapped up in one. Here's a testimony that hopefully will encourage many of you in this room. So the first time I ever stepped foot at Cedar Street Baptist Church was January of 2010. And I came here to give a testimony on Baptist Men's Day because I was invited by Eddie Jones. And he was one of my bosses. So when your boss asks you to do something, you do it. It's the first time I ever spoke in a church. If we could rewind the tape and look at January of 2010 and how nervous I was standing in this very spot, I would never in a million years have told you I was called to be a pastor. It wasn't, it wasn't on the radar. But it was a joy to be here, and I was filled with such joy to be with my new brothers and sisters here at Cedar Street Baptist Church. Well, a couple of weeks after that, I got an email from Vicki Aldridge, and she invited me to come back. And so I came back to Cedar Street, and I kept visiting and visiting, and Jamie Sutton told me to come back, and so then I came back some more. And then Casey Shaw reached out to me and said, we have a youth opening, why don't you just worship with us for a couple of months and see if this is for you. I came several times because of these warm invitations 
that were extended to me, but I walked that aisle and joined this church in 2010 for one primary reason. The marriages in this room. You want to know why I'm a member at Cedar Street Baptist Church? You want to know why with all the contemporary churches that are popping up, which by the way are doing a great job ministering for those that are called to those churches, why am I here instead of there? Because you cannot manufacture the amazing Christian marriages that are represented in this room here this morning. And when I join this church, I come as someone from a broken home. Okay, my parents divorced when I was 12 years old. All my friends... Parents are divorced. The, the street I grew up on, six straight houses. Divorce, 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 divorce. And so I had no Christian witness of what a godly marriage would look like. And then I walked into Cedar Street and I saw marriages of 30 years. I saw marriages of 40 years. And now, you know, that was 2010. I can think of at least two marriages in this room that weren't here in 2010. Uh, Dwayne and Bobby Tucker have been married 60 years. And, and, and uh, the Collinses, Jerry and Gail, have been married 50 years. All right? So more godly marriages are coming into this room. And why? Let me tell you a secret. It's not because of their compatibility. It's because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what we're going to be talking about here today. We're going to be talking about God's design for a Christian marriage and how that testifies to the rest of the world when a husband and wife are willing to do it God's way. The title of our message here is The Character of a Christian Marriage. The Character of a Christian Marriage. And here's the big idea. Here's what I want us to be thinking about as we walk into verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3. We are set apart by the character we demonstrate in our marriage as husbands and wives who follow Christ. We are set apart by the character we demonstrate in our marriage as husbands and wives who follow Christ. So if you want to know about the character of a Christian marriage, would you grab a Bible and join me in the book of 1 Peter? Again, 1 Peter is after the book of James, before 2 Peter. It's on page 1205 in your pew Bibles. And if you would stand at this time, out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and fully sufficient word. We are in 1 Peter chapter 3, reading verses 1 down through verse 7. Hear God's word to us, starting in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives." When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord." And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, again, we love you. And Father, as as you pressed it deeply into my heart this morning during our time of prayer at the Board of Education, I just, I just have a burden for the marriages of this community. Lord, 
I just pray for the marriages of this community and specifically in this room right now. Would you help us to sit under the authority of your word and then by the power of your spirit, open our eyes that every single one in this room, myself included, would consider the character of a Christian marriage and be willing to turn away from anything that we're doing that's not honoring you and with the spirit's power and grace that we would try to honor you in our marriages. What a testimony this would be to the rest of the community and the rest of the world, Father. So in the time we have left, left, let this be an act of worship that we would consider verse by verse the character of a Christian marriage. Be with us, I pray. Open up our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we jump right into verse one, which we'll do in just a second, I know a lot of people come and go, so I want to take maybe two minutes and connect last week to this week so nobody's lost. All right, last week we said the way in which you can submit to the plan of God is to understand what is called God's providence. And here's how I defined it last week. The providence of God means that he superintends and has full control over every single detail, large or small, of every single moment of existence. God is in control of everything. He's in control of every single breath you take. As Charles Spurgeon once said, there's not even a dust mite that moves without God's permission. He's in control of everything. But here's the key, and we said this last week. There are things that God initiates, and there are other things that he permits. All right, so in a broken world, God is not the author of sin. God never forces anyone to make a sinful decision, but he also allows them to do it. All right, when you look at the tragedies in the last 24 hours in Dayton, Ohio, in El Paso, Texas, you could, be, you could stand back and say, how could God allow that to happen? Well, let me just say this. God did not author that. He did not force anyone to do that. But yes, God did allow that to happen, and he allowed it to happen for a greater good that none of us in this room can understand because we don't see time the way that God does. I want us to think about the fact that God's in control, but yet we're still responsible. We make genuine choices that we're going to be judged on. And by the way, our prayer also changes things. God works through the prayers of his people to bring about his will. I was so blessed this morning to see Jim and Shelley Savage returning from Papua New Guinea where they spent weeks on the mission field in prayer so that God would protect people to put the word of God in native tongue. If they had not prayed, I believe there are things that would never have happened. So to say that God is providentially in control of everything doesn't mean we're robots. We have genuine choices and our prayers change eternity. But God is in control of all of that and he's working that together like a grand weaver in ways that we cannot fully understand. But when you believe this as a Christian and you've got the spirit of God living inside of you and you know that God's in control of every moment, whether good or bad, you can stop and say a few things. First, we said last week that according to Psalm 119.68, it says God is good and does good. So we need to say that not only is God in control, but he's a good God. He's a good God. There is no evil or darkness in him whatsoever. And it says in Romans 8.28 that We know that for those that love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So he is good and he does good. It doesn't mean that everything that happens is good, but it means God either initiates it or he allows it to happen and he's going to work together 
towards a, towards a greater good. So when you believe God's in control and you believe everything that he does is good, how do we respond to that? Well, we said last week that you respond with total trust, a quiet contentment, and humble submission. We trust in his plan. We have peace that even in our pain, that God is working this together for something greater that we don't know. All right, suffering tarries for the night, but joy comes in the morning is what, is what uh, Dave read in the psalm. And then humble submission. God, if this is the boss that you've placed over me, if this is the government leaders that you've placed over me, and within the family, if these are the leaders you've placed over me, I'm gonna trust and I'm gonna obey and I'm gonna honor you because you're gonna work this together for a greater good. So now as we think about Christian marriage, we're gonna be looking at the characteristics of a Christian wife and a Christian husband. And what I wanna say is, First, we need, to stop. we need to start right here by saying a wife and a husband are both made in the image of God. Therefore, they are equal in value in the eyes of God. However, because they are equal does not mean that their roles are equal. All right? We could be equal in value but different in our roles and responsibilities. And together, those responsibilities complement one another as part of God's design. He simply made men and women different. And society wants to erase all of those differences, but not God. He created us different for a very specific purpose. Now, you already heard me read the text, so even before I go back and explain, there's some words in there that make some of you very uncomfortable. You know how I know that? When I first got saved, they made me uncomfortable because I didn't understand. Why is it when we use words like submit and respect within the confines of marriage, why do they make us uncomfortable? I think there's two main reasons. Here's the first one. Men have abused the privilege of leadership. Men have abused the privilege of leadership. When you hear the word submission, the first thing that you're thinking, if it's anxiety, it's because you have seen men who've been given a great burden to lead their families and they used it as a tool for abuse instead of a tool for service. I call it the Archie Bunker Syndrome, all right? For men that think because they're the head of the household, they can come home, sit in their burlap chair, put their feet up on the ottoman and tell Edith to get him a beer. That's not leadership, that's laziness. And that's abuse with a capital A. And women are well within their right to be cautious of that word submission because men for a very long time have been overly abusive. But let me tell you the second reason why the word submission scares us. Because we've let culture dictate the truth instead of God. For too long, we're looking at television to tell us what should a marriage be. We're looking at reality TV shows. We're reading magazines. And we're letting the culture tell us this is what marriage is today. When God says, no, I created that back all the way in the Garden of Eden. And I had a design for it then. And I haven't changed my mind. So whether it's abuse from men or just the culture that wants to get in our minds, we have a tough time with understanding God's will. So I want to ask you this before we even walk into the text. Is the culture redefining marriage a good thing? Does it make anybody any happier when they decide not to listen to God, but they do marriage their own way? Do marriages in America today look any happier I want you to think back to the last maybe 40 or 50 years in our country, all right? Because the baby boober generation was the first generation that started getting divorced in droves. 
because of the 60s and 70s and the liberation movement. All of a sudden, people were going out seeking after happiness and completely disobeying God's word, and marriages became a shamble. Well, guess what? I did some more research this week, and I'm not surprised, although I didn't expect this. So I expected if I was going to do research on marriage today, I would see that the, the divorce rates keep getting higher and higher and higher. And the answer is no. Divorce rates are going lower and lower and lower. And so you'd say, wow, maybe the millennials are getting it right. And the answer is not that they're getting it right. The answer is they're not getting married. They're buying houses and moving in their boyfriend or girlfriend and shacking up and testing things out. And, and they do it under the disguise of, well, I respect marriage and that's forever. But what they want is all the blessings and privileges of marriage without the commitment. So we're worse off than we've ever been. And we are because the culture is telling the millennial generation, this is what you do. Don't jump into marriage, live together, sign a lease together, do life together, and after 10 or 15 years, if it feels right, then get married. And so when they jump into that, they say, man, this is great. I get all this stuff without having to do that. I get all the milk without buying the cow. So why don't I just keep doing it? And the institution of marriage, which is the first institution in Scripture, God instituted family before he even instituted the church. Culture has made a sham of it because we refuse to do it God's way. So as we walk into this, I really want us all to take this seriously. Now, when I say the word marriage, there are some of you right now that are saying, okay, great, but this is not for me. I'm not married or I'm in a tough spot right now. Listen to me. This message is for everyone. If you are not yet married, God wants you to understand his will for your future. If you're newly married, God wants you to understand his will for your present. If you're married and struggling, God wants you to understand how you can honor him in the struggle. If you're married and strong, God wants you to share with others how he has blessed your obedience. If you're divorced and hopeless, God wants you to know there is hope and restoration in the gospel. And if you're single by God's design, whether by being a widow or widower, or if you've been single your whole life because God had a special purpose for you, this message is still for you because you can pray for the marriages of this community and also use your singleness to serve the husbands and wives of this community in a special way. This word is for everyone here this morning. So I want us to look about how this set-apart character of Christian marriage is demonstrated both through the wife and the husband. And we're going to look at three qualities for each one very quickly coming right out of the text. So let's start, number one, the character of a Christian wife. And let's read verses one through six one more time. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. Verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. All right, that's a, it's a big chunk. I'm going to break it off into small bite-sized pieces for us to understand. And so the, one of the first characteristics of a Christian wife would be a submissive spirit. It says in verse 1, Likewise, 
Wives, be subject to your own husbands. It links back to what we said last week when we said as far as employers go, if we have someone over us in authority, we are to honor them. And he's saying likewise, like they do in the workplace, in the home, God has called a man to be the spiritual leader of his home and women are called to be submissive to that. And again, that verse or that word stirs up a lot of pain. But trust me, hang in here. Because okay, I'm going to call men on the carpet too. All right? The purpose of this submission is the end of verse 1. Listen to this. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. I want to tell you a story. Perhaps some of you have heard it. Maybe some of you have seen it in a certain movie that came out not too long ago. Uh, most of you maybe have heard the name Lee Strobel, who wrote the book The Case for Christ. And he has a documentary on his testimony. And then a movie came out with, I think, two years ago that kind of documents his life. Basically, Lee Strobel was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. And his wife, when they got married, neither one of them were Christian. And his wife became a Christian. And she started going to church. She was going to Willow Creek Church, one of the biggest churches in the United States in Chicago, Illinois. And he was angry. He said, I didn't sign up for this. I don't want a Christian wife. And so he went on a two-year investigation to try to disprove Christianity. And while he was gathering the facts, he came to know that Jesus, in fact, factually is the son of the living God. But guess what God did in the midst of that investigation that helped bring him to faith? He transformed Lee's wife's uh, life. Leslie is her name. He transformed Leslie's heart and she began to become submissive and supportive in the home. And he says in, uh, he says in the documentary that uh, she was winsome and attractive because of her quiet and gentle spirit towards him. He didn't know what was happening in her life. All he could see was that she was changing. She wasn't arguing and, and confronting him and, and challenging him. She was quietly supporting his vision for the family. And he said God used that to bring him to salvation. And after that, he wrote a book and movies have come out and thousands of people have come to faith through that testimony. And that woman, Leslie, when she stands at the day of judgment, she's going to get reward after reward after reward for her faithfulness. That's the purpose of submission, to be a testimony that God lives inside of you and you are seeking to honor God in your marriage. So then the next question comes up, well, For Christian wives, is there ever a time where it is okay not to submit? And the answer to that is, of course it is. All right? I tell this in premarital counseling all the time. If your husband asks you to do anything that is illegal, immoral, unethical, or unbiblical, your number one responsibility is to honor God. And you can honor God by looking at your husband and saying, no, I will not do that. Because God has clearly said that is not part of his will. All right, so submission doesn't mean you innocently go into the arms of an abuser. But it does mean in so much as what you're being asked to do is not illegal, support it. Because God casts the vision as he places it on the shoulders of, his hus- of the husband to carry out the will in the home. So, you know, I, I do want to say that when it comes to abuse, men should have never had to put women in position to have to decide anyway. If men are leading the way we should lead, we've never asked our wives to do anything that is illegal, immoral, unethical, or unbiblical because the purpose of male headship is protection and sacrificial love. I'm going to get to this at the end of the message, but the purpose of a husband is to be Jesus 
to his wife, who is the church. And Jesus sacrificially died and served and got on his knees and bound himself with a towel to wipe the dirty feet of his disciples to show whoever is great among you must be your servant. Now, I want to make a bold statement here. Those of you that know how much I love books will know how bold this statement is. I got saved 10 years ago. Before I got saved, you couldn't pay me to read a book. And now all I do is buy books. I've read hundreds of books and thousands of pages over the last 10 years. And what I'm about to read to you is the absolute best quote I have ever read anywhere. I want you to listen to every word of it because I think it captures what marriage should be more than any other quote I've ever read. It's from Matthew Henry, the great Puritan. Here's what he said. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. I could just end the sermon right there. That's God's calling on our marriages. And men, if we're leading the way that we should, it will be natural for our wives to submit to us because we're already on our knees serving them. That's what the leadership is all about. So submissive spirit to the leadership of the husband is the first characteristic. The second, according to verse 2, is a respectful attitude. A respectful attitude. All right? And let me just say that it never fails. When I do premarital counseling, I ask the future husband and the future wife, tell me in one word what you need most from your future spouse. And now the words may, may be different, but they all point to the same thing that a woman desires to be loved and a man desires to be respected. Now, it doesn't mean a man doesn't want love and it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that a woman doesn't want respect. But primarily, the primary thing that we desire is different. And how do I know that? According to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33, Paul says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The men want respect and the women want love because God has hardwired us that way. Uh, there's an author and psychologist, Emerson Egrich, who wrote a book called Love and Respect, and he explained this one verse in 350 pages. I just gave you the Cliff Notes version. All right? Men want to be respected. They want to feel competent. They want to have room to lead. They want to ask things to be done and for them to be done without argumentation. And women want to be loved. They want to be cherished. They want to feel safe. They want to feel protected. God wired us this way. It's not my vision. It's not anybody else's vision. There's no genius that cooked all this up. It's not Peter's vision. Peter's inspired of the Holy Spirit to tell you God's vision. And for women, that means respect comes with honor and support. You look at your husband and say, you know what? He may not be what I want him to be, but he's who God's chosen for me in this season of life to lead our home. I'm going to do what he asks. I'm going to honor him, and whatever he asks me to do, I'm going to support him in it because this is God's will for this season of life. So we talked about a submissive spirit, a respectful attitude, and third, pure conduct. Pure conduct. Verses 3 through 6 talk about a pure conduct. And let me start by saying it talks about external beauty and then internal beauty. Now, what I say to you, I don't say because I'm a red-blooded American male. I'm telling you this because I believe this to be true. Human females are the most beautiful creatures on the planet. End of sentence. 
God bestowed a certain beauty upon women that he did not bestow upon men, and he did not bestow upon any other creature on the planet. Men, if you think you're beautiful, take a real good look in the mirror before you hop in the shower. That ain't beauty that you're looking at. All right? We may be handsome, all right? But we're not beautiful. We're not. And we never will be because God didn't intend for us to be beautiful. When you look at a woman, there's an external beauty. That's a glory of God. That is a gift that God has bestowed upon women that he hasn't given to anyone else. But unfortunately, that external beauty has been manipulated in several ways over the course of human history. And I can think of two in particular. First, women understanding what a powerful tool their external beauty is, they've used it as a tool for manipulating power. They know, beautiful women know, they can use their beauty to get what they want. And men have abused the beauty of women because we forget that behind that beauty is a soul, that women are not sexual objects. They're human beings to be loved and nurtured. And so that external beauty has been abused by both men and women all throughout human history. And so that's why God is saying we need to take the focus off of the external and put it to the internal. Now, he talks about external beauty being accentuated by hair and jewelry and makeup. He is not saying, ladies, that you ought not to take care of your hair and buy nice jewelry and not put on makeup. He's not saying that. He's saying that's not what God really cares about. All right, what does God really care about? Verse four, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight, very precious. And by the way, not only is this precious to God, but it is unfading. It it never goes away. For the woman that has this external beauty and uses it as a manipulating tool for power, that tool is gonna go away eventually. But the internal beauty, it lasts forever. And in the sight of God, it is very, very precious. You know, the biblical example they give us in verse 5 through 6 is Sarah and Abraham. What a beautiful marriage. What trials and tribulations they went through. And in verse 6, it says this, and I know this is very jarring to hear this today. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, men, here's a tip from old Pastor Bo. Do not go home today and expect your wife to call you Lord. You say, well, she may not be Sarah, but you ain't Abraham either. All right. That was a different time in a different place, and those words meant different things. But the truth is still eternal. The truth that Sarah desired to honor God in her home, and she knew the primary way that she could do that was carrying out the will handed down from Abraham. Who did God speak to when he wanted to build a nation? He addressed Abraham, and then Abraham addressed the people. And so she was carrying out God's will. And the last thing it says, very strange statement, it says, do not fear anything that is frightening. What does that mean? Ladies, here's what it means. It means you ought to love God and also fear him in such a way that you would not disobey him by something on earth that that you fear more. That your love and fear of God keeps you so focused that you do everything you can to honor him in the home by doing things that are precious in his sight. That's the character of a Christian wife. Now, real quickly in verse 7, let's look at the character of a Christian husband. 
Verse 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So let's look at three qualities that men are called to have if we're following Jesus Christ. The first is an understanding heart. Verse 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. So I made the argument earlier in the message that men and women are different. God's made us that way. We can try to ignore it, but God has simply made us different. We're different physiologically. We're different spiritually. We have different interests. I'm reminded of this in my own marriage. All right, when I was single, I had this dream. Here was my dream. My dream was that every year in my house that my wife and my children would gather together and we would watch the whole Rocky series in order. <laughs> Rocky 1, Rocky 2, Rocky 3, Rocky 4, Rocky 5, Rocky Balboa, and now the Creed series. There's like seven movies. I thought, you know, we could bang that out in a few weeks. A couple Friday nights, a couple boxes of popcorn, and just sit down and watch it together. Let me just tell you, I'm an Italian. I'm from the south suburbs of Philadelphia. Rocky is one of my heroes, fictional or not. I love me some Rocky Balboa. Well, with, when we first got married, Ashley sat down with me, and five minutes into the movie, she looked right at me. She goes, is, is he speaking English? I, I, I don't understand. I don't get this. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not going to watch this. I'm sorry. I don't know what he's saying. He gets up and walks out of the room, and there's a lifetime dream down the tubes. <laughs> Why? Because it's just different for me than it is for her, because we're wired differently. You know, the other day, I saw the other side of this. The other day, I was in our living room at lunchtime playing with our daughter. I was sitting on the floor playing blocks, and and Ashley was sitting on the couch right next to us, and she's frantically looking at her phone, and she's got this scowl on her face, and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, Daddy did something wrong. And she leans over, and she says, I'm going to tell you one thing. I went, uh-oh, here it comes. She goes, I don't care what it takes. I'm going to get fungus off my hydrangeas. I will find a way. And let me just say to the ladies of this church, I believe she has found a way. I don't know if she's looking for any more recommendations. I think she's finally got it licked. It's, uh, we're different. I ne- in my thoughts as I came home for lunch and I'm sitting on the floor with my daughter, I was not thinking about her hydrangeas because we're not wired the same way. But here's what men are called. If we're called to lead men, the first thing that we need to do is be the example of how we can be understanding Guess what? If it's important to her, now it's important to you, whether it's something that you would care about or not. Okay? It's important. It's not unimportant. We need to be understanding. That means that we're patient and we empathize with what is important to them, understanding that we are just made different. We are just made different. So not only are we called to have an understanding heart, we're also called to have honorable intent. Second part of verse 7 says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now certainly, when it says women as the weaker vessel, that's another statement that kind of gives us that, that weird feeling in our stomachs. That does not mean weaker spiritually. I know men in, or women in this room who are so much stronger spiritually than their husbands are that it's not even funny. It means Physically. All right, by and large, men have, God has created men to be physically stronger creatures. And so one of the primary callings we have is to be the protector of the home. We guard the house. We allow our wives to sleep in peace knowing they're protected by a man of God. So we need to, we need to be honorable. We want to show them honor. 
We need to protect them. We need to give them security. We need to exalt them every chance we get. You know, I'm not on Facebook, so it's been a long time, but one of the things that really caught me by surprise is this. On Facebook, it seemed like every week people would do nothing but post things about their children, exalting their children. But I hardly ever saw a husband get on there and exalt his wife. I never saw a guy post something on Facebook about how great his wife is, ever. And I'm going to sit here and tell you, I haven't been on Facebook in a while, but that's something that I could have done a better job of too. I mean, our job is to honor our wives. They ought to be proud to be on our, on our arm as we're walking down the street. We ought to be able to show the world why we love them, why they're so beautiful to us. And that's what Peter's calling men to do. So not only do we uh, have an understanding heart and honorable intent, third, and finally, we, we sacrificially support them. We sacrificially support them. This is service. This is Jesus to the church, binding himself with a towel, getting in the dirt, washing the feet off his disciples' feet, laying his life down on the cross for his church. That's what we are called to do for our wives. I'm just, I'm just going to be honest with you. It is such, there's so many details involved with serving your wife I'm surprised men have as much time as they have to do some of their extracurricular activities. I'm not saying God has not called men to have hobbies. Sometimes Ashley probably wishes I had more hobbies and got out of the house a little bit more. But you know what? If you're, if you're intent on asking your wife several times a day, hey, do you need anything? Can I help you with anything? Guess what? If you ask that question long enough, you're not going to get bored. There's always stuff to do. There's always time to serve. And whatever stage of life you're in, I get it that I have a two-year-old, so that looks a little different for me than it does for some of you. But men, if our job primarily is to serve our wives, that's going to cut down on some of the extracurricular things. When we're at home with our wives and spending time and investing in them, yes, there's other things that maybe that we have a great interest in that we would love to be doing, but we need to love our wives even more. We need to love our wives even more. I want you to think about the first sin that ever took place. When Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, you know one of the reasons that happened? I don't think Adam was there. I don't know what he was doing, but I think if Adam was there, he probably would have been there to protect Eve from the attacks of the evil one. But he was busy doing something else. And men, sometimes we leave the post way too often in our homes because we love the golf course, we love the boat, we love everything else. Again, hear me clearly, those things are not wrong, but that should not be the goal of when we wake up each day. That should not be the goal. It's not about chivalry, it's about Christ. It's about Christ. And the last part of verse 7 says this, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Perhaps there are some of you that don't know the power of prayer because your prayers keep hitting the ceiling. And the reason why is you're living in disobedience and until you repent, God says, I love you, but I'm not going to listen to you. Do you know that God can love you, but yet close his ears off to your prayers until you pray the prayer of repentance? All right, you, you know this as, as, as parents. How many of you, you, you would say you could not love your children any more than you already do and they can't earn it and they can't lose it. But boy, when they just won't follow your lead, you're not gonna listen to what they're asking. All right, if they're screaming and hollering in Walmart, you're not, you're not all of a sudden motivated to get them an extra toy off the shelf. God's the same way. Our prayers are hindered and we don't know his power when we refuse to obey his will. So men, if you want to know the God's power and presence in your, in your life, don't let your prayers be hindered. See your wife as your number one ministry, your number one calling. 
I say this to myself as I say it to all of you. We can always do better. And, and the last thing I want to say before we sum it up is men especially, but women also, all this should be by keeping judgment day in mind. Now, as Southern Baptists, we believe in once saved, always saved. So I'm not saying that judgment day means we ought to be scared that we're going to lose our salvation. But judgment day still means, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the judgment seat of Christ, God is still going to bring to the light everything we've done in the body, whether good or evil. And there are men who have fallen asleep on the job. And God's going to hold you accountable for that. And you're going to lose heavenly rewards because of your disobedience here on earth. It's the reason I preach this passage. Listen, it'd be a lot easier to skip right over this. I know how you guys feel when I say certain words in here, but I love God and I'm going to face him on every word I preach. That's why if I choose a book to preach, I go every single verse so that I don't tempt myself to try to please people instead of please God by skipping over verses that are uncomfortable. I'm going to face him and so are you. So be faithful. So be faithful. So how do we sum this up? In one sentence, wrapping all this up, I would say this. When we demonstrate Christian character in our marriage, we visibly display the love shared between Christ and his church. Let me say it again. When we demonstrate Christian character in our marriage, we visibly display the love shared between Christ and his church. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 through 32 says this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Why did God create marriage? Well, there's a lot of benefits to marriage. There's the channel of sexual expression. There's companionship. There's procreation of human beings to flourish on the earth. All those things are great benefits. But the primary reason is he wanted to show the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, coming together as one. And when you live with Christian character in your marriage, you testify that Jesus Christ is alive and real. And so, you know, the Baptist faith and message summarizes how we do this perfectly. In an article on the family, Southern Baptist would say this, the marriage relationship models the way God relates to his people. A husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He has the God-given responsibility to provide for, to protect, and to lead his family. A wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband, even as the church willingly submits to the headship of Christ. That's the purpose of marriage. And when we follow that, it doesn't make it easy, but we do do it in the power of God and we're blessed. And when we walk out of that, we lose God's blessing and we lose his power. So let me just direct this to you as we close and and, and open a time of invitation. Here's how I invite you to respond to this message this morning. I'll start with the men in this room. Men, do you sacrificially serve and love your wife the way Christ does the church? Would you say that if Jesus was married to your wife instead of you, that he'd be doing the exact same things that you're doing? I would say if we judge it that way, men, we got a lot of work to do. And that starts with your pastor too. Do you love her and do you sacrifice for her the way Christ does for his church? Serving her, praying for her, listening to her, empathizing with her. That's your calling as a leader and you're going to be judged eternally for that. Something to think about this morning. Women, do you submit to the servant leadership of your husband the way the church does to Christ? Do you respect him? Do you carry out his will for your home even when you don't agree with it? 
Are you willing to see that God is casting a vision for your family and he's giving it to your husband because your husband's going to be the one held accountable? Are you willing to say yes and support him even if you don't understand and even if you don't agree? And then finally, this is for everyone. Do you know Christ served you by dying for you so that you could live for him? Are you willing to live for Jesus Christ because he died for you? In that respect, all of us are the bride. So men, we have to learn from women here. We are called to be submissive to Jesus because we are his bride, the church, and he died for us. Would you say that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life? He's the boss man. And what he says goes. And what he says in 1 Peter 3 is what you're going to take home with you today and put into practice in your home. Is Jesus the boss in your life? If so, Peter's given us some tangible ways this week that we can put that into practice. But if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, hear me clearly. He died so that you can truly know what it is to live. He died so that your sins could be forgiven and you could experience God's grace. He died so that you could have a relationship with a God who loves you, who created you, and who wants to be with you forever. But you must repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. You must confess with your tongue that Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Repent of your sin and say, Jesus, I'm all yours. If you have not done that, do not let this time of invitation go away without making it right and doing business with the Lord here this morning. And if you do follow him, then it's your job to demonstrate the character of a Christian marriage. Let's pray. Father, your word is convicting. I don't know anybody in this room that would say we're getting this completely right. But Lord, we confess that Satan is real. We confess that the culture is real. We confess that decades of abuse have really happened. And so we're scarred people. We're scarred people, but we worship a healing Savior. So Father, I I first start by thanking you this morning that in this room there are more godly Christian marriages than in any other place that I've ever been anywhere else in this country. And so I praise you for the amazing work that you have done in the marriages represented in this room. But Father, I pray that we would continue to be a shining light, not only in this community, but in this world, that we'd be known for strong marriages in Candler County, that we'd be known for strong marriages that demonstrate Christian character, and that we trust and obey your design for marriage even when we don't understand or agree. Father, I just pray that your grace would abound in our marriages. And I pray it would start right now. Help us to be receptive to what you're teaching us and to respond in repentance and faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.